1: off the Shelf Books Talk Radio World, we're over at Law Talk Radio, iTunes, Rainbow Soul, however you are tuning in to today's show. I want to wish you a happy Saturday, April the 18th, you guys. You know, COVID-19, they pushed the tax deadline back to July. We would have been scrambling this week <laughs> normally to get taxes filed if you hadn't already filed your taxes. So, But I want to wish you a happy, happy Saturday morning. We have an awesome off-the-shelf guest on deck for you. And she is so knowledgeable and so involved. I mean, just a true book maven. But before we introduce her, I want to lead us off with you. And this is from Cecily Tyson. And the thought is, challenges make you discover things about yourself that you never really knew. Challenges make you discover things about yourself that you never really knew. To our loyal, our loyal off the shelf listeners, 15 years with us, I just say thank you. And if it's your first time tuning in, maybe you just came on, you know how you're turning a dial on the radio and you're like, oh, what is this? I just want to let you know that you are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show off the shelf before we introduce to you today's guest. I keep asking you guys. How good of a mystery sleuth are you? Are you somebody who can figure out who done it? Are you like one of those Columbo monk, good mystery sleuths? You just keep working and working and working, following those hunters until you figure out who did it, and you love doing that. If you do, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Poem because there is a mystery tucked in this story, and it starts at the beginning when Raymond Clark, the, the star of the story, goes to college. But there's also relationships. So if you value relationships, there's a soulmate relationship between Raymond and Brenda, and they meet in college. There's also these four friends, these four guy friends. They are friends for life. But is one of them involved in the mystery? And then there's a complicated father-son relationship, Raymond and his father. If you value relationships, and I mean how they really impact us, the ugliness of them, and the absolute majestic sweetness and beauty of human relationships. And you love a good mystery. I encourage you to stop what you're doing and get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. You can get it in e-book or in print format. So please go teach yourself to Love Pour Over Me. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guests and I have run into her so many times online. Like some guests we've had on the show, I've run, I run into them on, online all the time. You never meet the person in person, but it's like you almost feel like you know them. You've run into them so much online. So she is one of those these people. And our special author shelf guest this morning is the one and only Valerie Coleman. Now, Valerie is a best-selling author and an award-winning publisher. She has more than 15 years of book publishing industry knowledge and experience. In addition to writing and publishing her own winning books, Valerie helps aspiring authors to successfully self-publish and market their books. She is the founder of the Dayton Book Expo, and I'm telling you, being from Dayton, that is quite an accomplishment. She might be like the first and maybe the only one there. And the book, the Dayton Book Expo has hosted more than 700 authors. Books that Valerie Coleman has written include Blended Family, the Forbidden Secrets of the Goody Box, The Weight of Success, How to Become an Overnight Success, Self-Publishing Made Easy, and All the Things I Can Be When I See Me. Please visit Miss Valerie Coleman online at penofthewriter.com and it's spelled just the way it sounds, P-E-N-O-F-T-H-E-W-R-I-T-E-R.com. 10 of the writer dot com. And it just rolls off your tongue. 10 of the writer dot com. You could actually go over there and check out her website even as you listen to what she shares this morning on Off the Shelf. We are absolutely honored to have Valerie join us on Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf Valerie.
0: Hey, Denise. Thank you so much for having me again. <laughs>
1: It is such a it is such a blessing each time I connect with you. You are you are so involved in I wanna give our listeners who they met this might be their first time ever hearing of of Valerie Coleman. I wanna just introduce them to you and also show them how a little bit how you got to where you are now. So to kick it off, Valerie, can you tell off the shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up?
0: Absolutely. Well, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Um, prior to the first grade, my father was in military, so we did travel abroad and then stateside, but we landed and rooted in Dayton, Ohio. I went to school here, then uh, and still I reside here even now. Went away to college but came back home. So Dayton, Ohio is my home. I was an engineer for 26 years in the automotive industry. And our plant, particular plant, closed in 2007. No hablo español muy bien. I was not planning to relocate to El Paso. So, what I did was I embarked upon the book business full time when the plant closed. And since then, I've published did you, over 100 books. you were a chemical offers. engineer.
1: Mm-hmm. This is something that I've always been curious about. You mm-hmm. were a chemical engineer. I was an industrial engineer. engineer. Industrial engineer. How mm-hmm. did you go from that to Writing books—that's like seems like a whole other world away. How did you? What yeah, did they, you know, even think?
0: Well they're, they're very different, but they, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. And why I say they're different, of course, is because you know, engineering—we were building air compressors for the car, and my job was to manage the oftentimes the people side of it, connecting the people with the machinery, making sure they were safe, and doing the job correctly—that kind of thing. And so, at the end of the day, the way I best describe my job is. I was responsible for figuring out how to do it better, faster, smarter, easier, less expensive, but still getting out a quality product and getting it out on time. And so when I transition those types of skills into the book business, I do those same, same things for my clients. So I showed them the process. I showed them how to do it from start to finish. I make sure that if I'm publishing their book, that it's a high quality book, I show them how to save money, thousands of dollars. So I transition those engineering problem solving skills to the book business. It was transferable skills that I was able to use to now serve myself and my clients. Um, And it's really not that far of a leap because when people think about the book business, they think about the writing side of it, which is the right brain function, but the business and the marketing, which consume actually 90% of what you're doing going forward, that part of it is left brain, which is the dominant logic, problem-solving, critical thinking, reasoning, which is why I was in engineering. Those, I'm a left-brain-dominant person. So for me, the, biggest, the bigger challenge for me is doing the writing. That's right brain. Interesting. I, don't, I don't sit over there too much. Yeah, I don't sit over on the right brain too much. That's where the emotions, the feeling, the intuition, and the creativity lie. My strengths are more um, left brain, which is, again, the, the problem-solving, critical thinking, saving clients money, that type of stuff.
1: Very interesting. So, when you were a kid, I have to ask you this: go from engineering, mm-hmm. industrial engineering, to the book publishing industry, and then you said you, you're more on the like the marketing and how to make it work side mm-hmm. More, mm-hmm. more than the creative side. But when you were a little girl, what did you what, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did you say? This is what I want to do.
0: I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a medical doctor, even up until like late into high school. I had applied, uh, well, I was interested in, in medicine, but then I realized, and he said, I don't like body fluids. <laughs> so that wasn't going to work. I don't, yeah. Mm I, Yeah, I got a problem with the blood and all the other stuff that comes out the body. It just, I just get, I don't get nauseated, but it, I get disgusted. So I can't work with a client and they've got, a, you know, something that's flowing somewhere. And I'm looking at things like that, it's so nasty. It wasn't a good fit for me, but Just like in medicine, you have to use a lot of the problem-solving, you know, and figuring things out and helping people. So what ended up happening was I chose the engineering profession kind of by happenstance. I uh, didn't really know much about engineering. And when I was still in high school, college students from the school I ended up going to came to my school looking to do a presentation with some of the students. And they wanted the students who were engineer type, so you know high GPA, math proficient, that type of thing. And so my counselor at the time, which was Mrs. Underwood, pulled me and two Caucasian uh, young men out of class because I was like I was in the top nine, uh, top three percent of my class, top nine, the only black up that high up in the the rankings at school. And so she pulled me out and two other guys, and myself and one of the other gentlemen ended up going to this particular college they were recruiting for which at the time was General Motors Institute, now it's named Kettering University in Flint, Michigan, one of the elite colleges for engineering students. And so I ended up going there, which was perfect because my family was in a financial situation. Uh, my father, who was the breadwinner, had been laid off from his job. And, you know, so we were in a financial crunch and really didn't know if I was going to be able to go to college and apply for a few places, but then it became, how are we going to pay for this? And when this opportunity came along, I was like, "Oh well, let me, you know, at least see what they're talking about." And now I'm dating myself because we're talking about in the '80s, but <laughs> in the early '80s. I just say it '80. Yeah, I, I graduated in '81, so they probably came to the school in either '80 or, or early '81. And back then, there was it was a co-op program. You work three months, go to school three months, and the, when you work, it was you get paid hourly. I was going to start out making eight dollars an hour. Now, of course, now 30, what 40 something years later, almost 40 years later, that's no money. But mm-hmm. at I started out 17 years old making $8 an hour. I would, I would, oh, I would yeah, that ain't more bad. Than my right. Yeah, I, was, I would have been making more than my father at that at that age, at 17. And that was, you know, part time because I went to school three months and then worked three months. And so we were like, oh, we could, that'll pay for the school. Let's do it. You know, so I ended up in engineering because of a financial reason. You know, my my counselor saw something in me and for financial reasons we looked into it and yep, got the got the opening. I was concerned my um ACT and SAT were good, but not based on their requirements not as good as they require. But because I think because I was minority and female, I was able to get in into the school and then I ended up graduating from there with honors as well. So, when I do stuff, I try to put my all into it. Because my thing is, uh, an acronym I recently came up with for working with clients is I want them to rise. I want them to get results through my integrity, my service, and my excellence. And that's kind of been my way of moving forward in everything I do. When I would teach at a college level math, I would teach them, giving them everything that I had to make sure that they were successful. And I do the same thing for my authors, whether I'm mentoring them or publishing their books. Or hosting a speaking engagement, a live event, I make sure that I give them my all.
1: You know, one thing about you, Valerie, and I want to talk about your your children's book. There's so much to cover in today's show, and we may not get to everything, but I'm certainly going to try to get to as much as as we can for our listeners. But not only do you help others to self-publish and market uh, their books to be successful, but you also have that grassroots experience that you could share with your clients because you've written and published, you know, had to get the book covers ready and everything, books yourself. So speaking of that, before we go uh, deeper into the services that you offer to other writers, can you treat us to an overview of all the things I can be when I see me?
0: Absolutely. So All the Things I Can Be When I See Me, and the website for that is thingsicanbe.com. It's a book that I did based off of conversations with my granddaughters. They are at this age, they're 11, Samara is 11, and Lyric is 5. But for years, we've been having conversations about what they want to be when they grow up. And because the girls don't live near me, I'm in Ohio, they're in Georgia and Texas. I don't see them that often. So our time together, albeit limited, I try to make it as much quality for the both of us as I can. And so what happens is we have these great conversations. You know, even at when Lyric and I started talking about her career, she might have been two or three years old. When you talk to children, not like they're adults, but when you don't baby them in the conversation, it's amazing the type of responses you get. And so we talked about all kinds of careers, you know, what she had seen on TV, things she hadn't thought about, and the same thing with Samara. And so as they shared their dreams and hopes and aspirations with me, I would always give them an example of a woman of color who had done what they said they hoped to do. So I wanted them to know that women have done this and women specifically who look like you have done this. And as a result, it was encouraging for them to build their self-confidence, their self-esteem. And we just talked about what they want to be when they grow up. So every few months, of course, they change. Lyric has wanted to be an astronaut, a firefighter. She wanted to be a baker and a a singer. And most recently, she wants to be an (laughs) archaeologist.
1: She really okay. Mm
0: -hmm. You pick
1: one of them or maybe something totally different.
0: Right. And she may pick right. She may pick something totally different. But the thing is to let her know that she has opportunities, she has access, and she has ability. And I want to encourage them now to think about what they're doing. So you know, not that they are misbehaving or anything. But I'll say, remember, you told me you wanted to be an archaeologist. So archaeologists have to one, two, three, four, five. You know, and just kind of give them insight and encouragement and keep pushing them along the way. Because what I do is I encourage. As an educator, an engineer, and encourager, I just want to keep them on track. And conversations help do that. At one point, Samara wanted to be a gymnast, and so I, living in a different state, I mailed her a gymnast mat, you know, maybe eight feet long, pink, with little white hands and feet all over it. So I mailed that to her to encourage her. this is what you want to do, let's practice. Mm-hmm. You know, keeping them encouraged.
1: You, and so this, are your... Your your granddaughters then, if you could introduce us to the major characters and and I love that title, all the things I can mm-hmm. be when I see me. Are mm-hmm. did you literally take these two granddaughters and are they a different character in the book?
0: So in the book, Samara is Samara and Lyric is Lyric. They are actually throughout the book, these are based on conversations that we had The only thing is because we're not often together with them being in different states, and when we are together, it may be over a series of weeks, what I did was I took a combination of our conversations over the years and wrapped it up so that it appears to have occurred in one weekend. So that way, I'm flowing with everything that I wanted to capture in the book over the course of a weekend, and yeah. But Samara is Samara in the book, and she's my she's my dark chocolate baby. Lyric is my milk chocolate baby, and I, if they were Lyric was very clear that when I initially did the illustration, well, I didn't do the illustrations. But my illustrator initially sent the samples. Both babies were brown skinned when I sent it to Lyric to look at and, you know, let her know, baby, you're about to be in this book. We're almost done. She said, that's not me, Mimi. Yeah, baby, that's you. No, that's not me because I'm, I'm Lelo. I said, oh, okay.
1: <laughs>
0: so so even though these were brown-skinned babies, and my intent is to let little brown girls know that they can be whatever they want to be, Lyric couldn't connect because it wasn't her color of brown. And when I went to communicate this with my illustrator who was from, She's from Poland. She lives in Scotland. And I kept saying, make Lyric lighter, make her lighter. That wasn't resonating with her. So she said, it's as light as I can make it, you know, based on graphics and changing the hue of a specific tone. So she said, send me a picture of a children's book with the baby the color that you want Lyric to be. When I tell you, Denise, I searched through Amazon and I searched through Google in general on African-American children's books. I could not find a single book. Now, let me tell you, I didn't do an exhaustive search. I probably went like 20, 30 pages in of images and couldn't find one with a child who was what we would call red bone light skin color. All of them were brown. And so I had to go into the Latina market to find a baby the color of Lyric and send that to my illustrator so she could match the hue and make it Lyric color. That that in and of itself it just blew me away with all the ch- African-American children's books that are out there. None of them had babies of different hues. They were all brown.
1: Oh, interesting. In- you know, mm-hmm. the things we learned, the things we learn. Mm-hmm. You are doing a phenomenal job spreading the word about all the things I can be when I see me. Do you have plans to turn this into a series for kids and teachers and parents that are saying, oh, we love these characters? Are you going to give us more? Are there plans to turn it mm-hmm. into a series, or is this a, this a one and, and standalone book?
0: Well, first of all, thank you, because as you know, this is a lot of work. But what I will say is eventually, now I've, I've had recommendations, take each career and do a separate book on each career. I mentioned like 23 careers in a book, so that would be 23 different books where I would delve more into it which is a great idea. However, it gets to be costly because my illustrator, although she charged a fair price for her work, it wasn't cheap. I probably spent close to $2,500 between illustrations, cover design, and edit. well, editing and not editing, but illustration and cover design came to almost $2,500, which is fairly expensive when you consider the cost maybe to do a novel. The, your bulk of your expense would be in editing. So I had a it was a significantly the most expensive book I've ever published, and that's because it's fully illustrated, thirty two pages. So to do in my head, of course the engineer kicks in twenty three times twenty five hundred, y'all talking about a whole bunch of money. I'm not doing that right now. So what what I'm what I'm doing is I had it translated into Spanish. So I can use the same illustrations, just have to change the text. So I'm that's when engineering kicks in. So now I'm figuring out, okay, how can I reduce my cost and still create a new product? So by doing that, I can do a Spanish version, just have to pay to have the new text dropped in, the cover modified, but not new illustrations. So I'm going to do a Spanish version. I've got somebody lined up to do the French version. I'm going to do a coloring book, all off of the same book. I have merchandising options, including aprons. I had some dress-up aprons created, which initially my intent was to have these aprons done for when they're cooking like they would look like they have on their chef apron or if they're painting to protect their clothing but and it had it listed all the professions in the book but what i found is little boys like it little girls like it and when they put it on they are whatever they want to be my mind you're a chef no and there my note one young man when he said i'm a president okay sir president it is you know so so that was a good thing to do right i found multicultural crayons because of the situation with Lyric and not identifying with the brown-skinned baby, I said, well, how many other children can I identify? And when I do these coloring books, I want them to be able to color themselves. So initially what I was going to do, well, I searched and couldn't find anything on multicultural crayons. It took me a while, but I finally found some which you can purchase in bulk, and it's a set of eight crayons, six shades of brown, a black and a white, so that children can blend the colors to look more like them in the crayon box, you got brown. You might have tan, and that's it. So this way, I have that as an option. I am looking to possibly do it as an audio book. It's already an ebook. I'm going to do a library edition, which means hardback. So the one book is going to maybe be in six or seven different versions before I actually move on to the next book. What I do have planned is one for little boys. I wrote a. I was a keynote speaker for a. a graduation for students who were in high school but attending a college theater program. So when they were graduating from this program called the Young Scholars through Sinclair College, I was asked to be the keynote speaker. So in doing this, I'm like, okay, what message am I going to convey to these young people and how am I going to do it? This is my first keynote, you know, so I'm a little anxious. This has been years ago, probably, I don't know, 15 years ago. So I wrote a story to convey a message to them. When I read the story, they loved it. It was like, oh, my God, okay, this is well received. And it was about a little boy. And so what I'm going to do when I do my next book, because everybody's like, do you have one for boys? I'm going to do one about that um, because I have a grandson whose name is Sean after my son, his father, loves Sean. So I'm going to – that character is going to be named after him, and I'm going to write that book next. And uh, – Eventually, how Valerie, before, Valerie, Valerie you
1: can. T- I can see. You see, you see how the wheels turn. <laughs> and you know what? After you've been in publishing, particularly if you're an indie publisher or indie author, you just learn more about the business. And the wheels are mm. always spinning. How can I repurpose this? So I don't have to start from square one. How can I mm. put out a great product without breaking the, the bank? The bank account. You just, you just do that for our listeners. Being that you you this is your first time right with a, ch- a children's book this is your first yeah. time experience so and and I see you 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 you're help you're working with your clients other authors and also promoting uh oh what I can be when I see me how did you go about picking your illustrator you talked about the prices and the mm-hmm. book is fully illustrated what advice would you give to an off the shelf listener who wants to write a children's book and they don't want to be, like, find out later, oh, my God, I spent $10,000 more mm-hmm. than I had to. What advice mm-hmm. or tips could you give on finding a, an illustrator?
0: Absolutely. First, let me say I just did a webinar, Leapfrog, Leapfrog Your Success, How to Publish a Best-Selling Children's Book Without Spinning Your Top, Losing Your Shirt, and Getting Stuck in the Mud. And for your listeners, if they contact me through the website, ThingsICanBe.com, the contact us page. I will send them the replay of that webinar, and it's uh, me presenting for about an hour and then 30 minutes of question and answers. So that'll answer quite a few of their questions because I know we're on limited time. But for to find the illustrator, um, for me, what I did was I did a, a research first on social media. I did a call for illustrators on social media, various social media platforms, and I probably got 30 or 40 illustrators out of that call, and then I went through a process of vetting them. I gave them a sample, or I told them what I wanted in one of my illustrations, and I asked them to present a sample. Some illustrators wouldn't give a sample, not for free or not at all. I said, okay, well, then I can't work with you. I'm not going to hire you if you can't meet my vision. So Mm -hmm. when those who submitted the samples came back with them, and some immediately I was like, oh, my God, that is horrible. And some were really awesome. And and so the ones that I got over time, I probably maybe got 10 or 15 samples. I did a Facebook post and put the one that I liked the best first and then put the other ones and asked people to do a poll. So that did two things for me, but multiple things. It let me – See what the people thought were the better images, although I kind of had in my mind made of which one I was going to go with, but it also let them know I had a children's book coming out, mm-hmm. and it gave them some insight into feeling like they were part of the decision-making process. So it was a great, great opportunity. When I did that, people started asking, when's the book coming out? When can I order it? Let me get – I was like, oh, my gosh, okay. Okay, well, let's let's get this money. But <laughs> – so – and what ended up happening, though, is the illustrator that I initially went with, because I met him before I met my illustrator, who is Natasha Renette, I met him first. He was from Indonesia, did a great job. His pricing was phenomenal. Um, my cost with him was going to be a total of $800 for well, full-color children. Um, Well, there's 32 pages, and it's about 26, 27 illustrations. Another thing I did to save money, again, I'm always in the engineering cost mode, was on some pages, instead of having her do a full illustration, I had her do um, maybe take a piece of an illustration from another page and crop it out and put it there. So a couple times we did that with the girls, like instead of them, um, with all the background and everything that goes into an image, it was just the girls, so it looked like they were just kind of popping in on a page. Or she would do what we call half illustrations. And so that saved money um, doing it that way. But I would say at the end it was probably like 25, 26 full illustrations. And with him, it was going to cost $800 total for two covers, all the colors, uh, all the full-colored illustrations, and then the companion sketches. So I was going to end up, when I was done with him, for $800, I would have had two books, the full book and then the coloring book. Um, but, what happened was him being overseas in Indonesia he had internet issues, and at times he had we had bad connection so at one point i didn 't hear from him for like three three weeks, three or four weeks now that doesn 't wow. sound like a big deal, but I had already given him some money, not all of it. I had given him some money, and I had already people had already placed orders, and I had told them the book would be ready by May. So here I am with people's money. I've sent him some money, and he got ghost on me, as they say, for a month. And after I said about the third week, I was like, oh, no, I can't do this. So I started searching again and found this young lady. Because she actually came, Natasha came, after I had confirmed with my first illustrator, she sent me an image. And I loved hers better. She was three times as more expensive, but I had already an agreement in with him so maybe it was god that he fell through because then i went with her because i love her work and um i didn't have any issue that with her is... i learned uh-huh no go ahead i was going to say i learned a lot in the process one thing being if you do deal with an international illustrator don't use western union to make payments because mm. there's no recourse once you make a payment by western union for international pay it's gone and not, and he finally reached out to me maybe two or three weeks after I had locked in with her apologizing, internet access issues, and, you know, I'm I'm sorry, I'll take the price off. You know, because I, I, I wasn't – he'd done a good job for me, what he had done, but I couldn't do anything with it. I might have had two or three finished images and a few sketches, but I couldn't do anything with that. So, you know, he's like, well, I'll just – when you come back for the next project, I'll take that amount off because I'd only paid him 150 I said, no, that's okay, don't worry about it, you know. Just that's just your compensation for having done what you did, but I can't let you burn me again, so I'm gonna move on. <laughs> but uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so let, me you, let me ask you. Let me ask you. That's a good even. Twenty five hundred for that many uh, images is is really really good. But um, oh yeah, the price that you got. Um, so how about like for our and I'm I'm thinking about a author who wrote a, her name is escaping me. She wrote Satin Doll years ago, and it became a New York Times bestselling author, and she initially had a friend do the illustration for the cover. They, they didn't think the book was going to sell like it did. And then when mm-hmm. it did, the friend came back wanting more money. So how, how, what's the, what is the process to uh, make sure, for, and again, these are tips for mm-hmm. our listeners, the process to mm-hmm. make sure you own those images and nobody can right. come back and say we need to cut a new deal if the book takes off.
0: Well, oftentimes what happens is when you do business with friends, you don't think about the legal stuff and so you don't put agreements and contracts in place. And that's probably what happened with her. Because had she had a contract in place that said, here's what you're doing for me, here's your compensation, and you're not entitled to any more going forward, then she would, there wouldn't have been no recourse for the illustrator. That's what I did with my illustrator. I contracted an illustration agreement which very was very specific about what illustrations i needed the sizes i needed them to be how many i needed the colors that i wanted to use you know because there's different color scales to use. you could use the cmyk or the rgb and the format that i wanted them in the files that i needed all that was laid out in this agreement timing pay schedule how you were going to get paid compensation in the event of litigation, I put all that together in this illustration agreement, which it also, you know, indicated who had the right to this. Because once I pay you for those, these are mine. I paid mm-hmm. you for your work. These are mine. And now I allow Natasha has used them like in her portfolio, but without the text. So she showed yeah. me, this, this is what I've done. And that's cool because I want to help her boost her thing too. Because since then i, I referred mm-hmm. several people to her, and I know at least, at least one has published a book through her, because she does great work. She was the first time illustrating a children's book, although she was a profound illustrator. She had never done a children's book, and this was my first children's book. Although I had published 134 authors, this was my first children's book. So it was kind of like we learned this process together. And okay. she did a wonderful job. I highly recommend her, Natasha Ramez. Uh, I can't think of her website, so if anybody's interested, they can visit me at thingsicanbe.com, and I'll send them her information. But I had an illustration agreement which clearly stated who owned the rights to what going forward. So that's the first thing. So, and I don't recommend, I mean, you know, unless your friend or cousin or children are really good at illustration, It's best to keep that separate anyway so you don't muddy the relationship because now you have to separate business and personal. The other thing is if they're not a professional illustrator or designer and they just draw by hand now because I'm working with a client now whose children's book was illustrated by her niece, now you have to invest in getting the illustrations digitized because they're on hand on paper. You have to get them digitized and then colored correctly so it doesn't look like it's hand colored but filled in using Photoshop or whatever. And so there's gonna be some money involved in that, you know, as well. It's just a matter of what look you're going for with the illustrations and how much you want to You know, spend. and I
1: appreciate you sharing that again, you know, because you hear stories about authors and then on off the shelf I like to give tips for our listeners so they can mm-hmm. avoid uh some financial snafus or even nightmares mm-hmm. going forward. Getting overcharged. Make sure you do have an ironclad contract, et cetera, So you don't you don't pay for illustration and find out you don't really, you don't own them or you can only use them one time. So you want to mm-hmm. be clear in your contract about that. Is it really possible, Valerie? The your, the work you do for your clients and your book, The Way to Success, how to become an overnight success, and in- 7300 days is it really possible is it really possible to become what they call an overnight success you always hear that term
0: is that really possible well in my opinion and in my experience eh uh, nah. because what happens is that 7300 days is 20 years oftentimes when people think somebody has become an overnight success they've been working in their craft for a long time behind the scenes and maybe they've been going to school and getting degreed in it or they've been having life experience or they've been learning and, and growing and doing things on the side, but they haven't actually become well-known in front of people until years later. I mean, if you think about Steve Harvey or Kevin Hart or even um, Tyler Perry, to some people who just met them or just heard about him, it might seem like they had an overnight journey. But I know for a fact that Steve Harvey and Tyler Perry both went through a place of homelessness while they were moving and pushing towards their vision and their passion. So it doesn't necessarily happen overnight. Before the the outside, outsider, it may look like it happened to you overnight. Even with what I do with Pen of the Writer, I am in a lot of places and I'm doing a lot of things, but I've been doing this full time now since 2007 when my plant closed and really not even being because I messed around and got involved in other people's visions instead of living my own. But I've been at this for a long time. And I'm just getting to the point now where I've seen the fruits of my labor manifest, not just financially, but in how other people's lives are changing. I'm seeing that on a more consistent basis. But overnight success is, is far-fetched, and it doesn't often happen. Maybe for those on American Idol who pop in and sing and then win, but even in that, they were singing and practicing and learning and skilling their craft long before they got on the stage in front of the judges. So in my opinion, no, you can't be an overnight success. Even people who, who hit the millionaire lotto or whatever they do, that doesn't make them successful because they won those millions of dollars. What happens now is all their insecurities, all their issues, all their vulnerabilities are now magnified because they have more money. So if they were poor spenders before they made millions, they're going to be poor spenders and out of those millions in no time.
1: Mm. Now, what over, so what success topics do you tackle in your book, The Way to Success how to become an overnight success in 7,300 days. What are some of the topics that you touch on mm-hmm. in the book?
0: Well, it's an anthology. So there are 14 stories in there from different people, and some of them talk about business success. So, like, my personal business coach, Darnell Jervie Harmon, talked about her process. As, you know, when she was a child, her mother was on, taking drugs and didn't realize she was pregnant until she was pr- pretty far along. The doctors didn't expect her to survive. But not only did she survive mm-hmm. and thrive, she's now a self made millionaire and teaching other people how to become self made in their business, billionaires and your know, thousandaires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so she tells her story. Another friend of mine, Juanita Darden, had uh, tells her story about how she wanted to have a brick and mortar store. So she talks about the different stores she had and had one and lost it, had one and lost it. And then She goes in to talk about her process of having what is now known here in the city as Third Perk Coffee House and Wine Bar and her challenges to get from having nothing to having now two or three locations of this restaurant being designated as official sponsor for one of the NFL teams and having, you know, so she's really blossomed. So she tells her story of how she found this brick-and-mortar location, converted it, and the process of getting to there. There's stories in there from a medical doctor and how she positioned herself to be one of the only or maybe the only African-American female podiatrists in our city and how she processed through there. My son has a story in there where he talks about his success, but he talks about it from a different perspective. Not, not for everybody. Success isn't necessarily financial or necessarily professional. So he talks about success and being connected with who you are and being the best you, you can be. And okay. whatever, however you define success, that then you've achieved it. However you define it, work towards that, whether it's family mm-hmm. relationships, whether it's your career, whether it's educational aspirations, whatever it is, you define it for yourself, and you live that out, and when you get there, you celebrate it. So there are all kind of great stories in there about fulfillment and getting my health together from talking about being a single mother and the challenges and strategies and, and issues experienced from being a single mom to now being a, what I call a doctor nurse. She is a, what is it, what, what, what is it when you have, you have, she has a doctor's degree in nursing. I can't think of the letters. But she's a doctor nurse now. That's her title, mm-hmm. like a nurse practitioner. And so she talked about being a single mom and the challenges she had to get there. And the time it took, I mean, for most of them, when they tell their stories, they talk about the timeline. And one in particular, Juanita, who talked about her process of owning her building, it, she goes through and shows the days, and her days exceeded 7,300. So she says on day 292, I did this, and on day 592, this happened, and on day six wow. thousand one, and it really laid out the timeline. And me being a math person, which I didn't know at the time, she is too. We both teach math. Uh, so that worked for her, and I was just excited. Oh, my gosh, the numbers in the timeline. Love it. <laughs> yeah oh my god so so so. no go ahead i was going to say the you way it says debuted as a best-selling book in non-fiction i used to host in dayton i hosted the dayton book expo for 10 years 2019 was the last year of doing that and now what i'm doing is the pen of the writer or power book fest And I've collaborated with another small business owner who's also named Valerie, Valerie McKinney-Walker. And we are combining our skill set, our resources, our processes to host the first of its kind citywide small business book event. So she's handling the small businesses. So there are going to be artists there, clothing designers, food vendors, you know, creatives on everything but the books. And then I'm bringing in the authors and doing the book side of it. So we're bringing our events together to host this uh, two-day event now throughout the city to connect people with small business owners, supporting small business owners. Most of us, most of them are from Ohio, Michigan, Indiana. Some are coming from further. But to really connect people with small businesses, because, you know, small business is 80% of the People oh, that will be so good after this yeah.
1: quarantine is yeah, over. So I know small racket. business owners will really appreciate that this year after the uh, yeah. the cor- the quarantine I- ends. Now, you've done so much in booking the book and marketing spaces. You So you launched the Dayton Book Expo, what, two years, a year or two after you left Delphi and started uh, mm-hmm. writing? You waited, what, like just two years, and then you just kicked off the Book
0: Expo? Well, Delphi closed in 2007. That same year, I was teaching, writing, and publishing, and marketing to inmates and high school students. I wanted to, like, give back. So that was my give back through the Passionate Pens program. And in 2008, one of the high school students wanted to finish the – I had them all, the inmates and the high school students, submitted stories for my second anthology, Tainted Mirror, That was a book about being imprisoned, either with virtual restrainers or physical restrainers that held you hostage from doing what you wanted or needed to do in life. And so all of them were in that book. Well, one of the students in my high school program, Passionate Pens, wanted to take her short story and make it a full novel. And she was still in high school. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. So we're going to do this. We have to do this big citywide thing. We have a high school student that's going to be a published author. So I started thinking about how can I do this citywide book event for her. And I started putting things in place and talking to people and, and positioning stuff so that the book would be launched in 2008 as a big citywide event. Well, she didn't finish the book. But what that did was spark in me a desire to do a citywide book event because I had been to a lot of other cities, attended their events, some awesome, some awful, and I really wanted to do something similar in the city of Dayton. So in 2010, the first Day Book Expo was launched, and I did that, like I said, for 10 years with two other authors, and last year was the last year for that. It became very time-consuming with little financial results. So I said, I need to, go, again, going back, into, yeah, going back into the engineering side of it, I said, let me rethink this, let me redo this, make some changes here, some changes there. And I was going to take a break for a year and come back with the book event in 2021 when Valerie approached me about partnering with her to bring the authors to her event. I said, okay. So it was actually supposed to be May the 9th, but we've already rescheduled for August because of all this going on with the virus. So hopefully we'll be able to go forward August 1st. If not, the next year will be 2021 when we'll do it. I'm looking to have 50 to 75 authors. She'll probably have 100, 125 vendors. So we're looking to have pretty close to 200 small business owners in this expo facility and really let people connect. Friday. Oh, that that will be be awesome. I think that was
1: going to be awesome. I was going to ask you, Dolores Thornton, she started a – Book festival in Indianapolis, and she—I think mm-hmm. she ran hers for about ten years. But how much investment, time, and, and money is required to launch and operate a successful book expo? I would think you mm-hmm. get your sponsors. Does that cover? Does that cover the cost of? I don't know the space rental. Does that, that cover the mm-hmm. cost of any food you got to put out? Mm-hmm. Uh, any security you have to get? Does that sponsorship cover the cost, or do you rent out tables to authors uh, to, to make mo- uh, money off of it? How much t- how much investment, time, and money wise actually goes into operating a successful book expo? It, is it six months out that you start working on it?
0: A whole year out, no, a year out, uh, and for me, one year I actually started tabulating my my hours because I was starting to get frustrated. I'm like, I'm putting in all this work and I'm not getting any return. And true enough, I wanted to do this for the community, but because I am full time entrepreneur and this is how I eat, I needed this to make financial sense as well. And it wasn't adding up. So one year I actually tracked my hours to see, you know, how much time am I actually putting into this expo and it was like seven hundred hours. And I was Wow like, Wait a oh minute. Oh my God. Wait a minute. Yeah, and that was me one of three people. Now I was doing seventy percent of the work, but as one of three, so collectively it might have been almost a thousand hours worth of work, and it, we weren't weren't getting the results financial. A lot of that was because sponsorship was hard to attract because one it was for profit, and for two I was trying to do a whole lot of everything, and I. I couldn't do all of it. And so sponsors kind of fell through, although over the years I was able to acquire some financial sponsors. Most of them were in-kind, but I was able to acquire, acquire a few in in um, financial sponsors, which really helped to offset the expense. My objective, of course, is to generate enough sponsors so that any money that came in from the authors would be profit. Mm-hmm. But the way it was running was – the author investment for the space, The I gave them marketing training. I did press releases, radio, TV, magazine, the the venue, you know, all of that added up. And what was happening was what the authors were paying to participate was basically going right back out into marketing oh. and covering the, the venue cost. So there wasn't r- really any profit to be had. So... I this way, the way I'm doing it now, I'm working with partnership with another small business person, we are splitting our costs, so that cuts my costs in half, and a lot of things that I was having to do, she also does, so now we're marrying our efforts to have much more profound effect and exposure into the community, which is awesome, yeah back to your okay. mhm.
1: And then when you add in the food vendors, because they can rack up at those like, those events. Oh yeah. The food vendors. Yeah. So that's that's where you know they they start making money. So they they be more than happy to come and pay the uh, the booth fee and and get set up because they they really make out if the if if there's enough traffic they do make out. Now for our yeah. as we co- we're coming down to just less than fifteen minutes in today's show. The, the services. Can you tell us about the services that you do offer your clients? That you mm-hmm. offer to other authors. What types of authors do you work with? And or do you only work in certain genres? So that you don't. You you only work. Do you only do like mystery or romance? The type of writers you work with. The type of genres you work with. And then, if you could just give us like an overview of the services that you offer to authors who work mm-hmm. with
0: you. So through Pen of the Writer. And like you mentioned before, my website is com. I offer a myriad of services on on a continuum. So I have books for those people who just want to figure out how to do this themselves. I have books specifically on self-publishing. Then in between there, I do speaking engagements and live events, and I host my own live events and conferences. Then there's also mentoring for people who want that one-on-one access to me. And then at the other end of the continuum, I actually publish books for clients. That's where the 134 authors I've published comes in. And my clients are there. There's a wide range. Everything that I publish is inspirational. I don't do erotica and I don't do urban lit. I just that just doesn't fit well with me because I can't read your manuscript because I can't do the cuss and I can't do I can't do all of that. So it's no sense me trying to act like I'm going to publish your book and publish it well. So I don't do those genres. But and for the most part, although it hasn't necessarily been my focus, my authors are nonfiction writers, inspirational or clean writing, and most of them are professionals and speakers and experts in their specific genre or field or whatever they're writing in. So like Dr. Karen Townsend, her book, Is It All Started When I Stopped Using Lotion, One Woman's Journey from Chaos to Calm. Well, she is an organization and, and manage, she organizes she aligns organizations and maximizes talent, and teaching diversity and women health and and women issues and helping women do better and live better. And so her book falls right in line with her audience. And then there's Andrea Foy, who is a John Maxwell certified coach and speaker. Her book is Higher Power: How to Find It and Keep a Job. And so I helped her write, well, publish that book and get it marketed. And it's been a bestseller. Doctor Townsend has been a bestseller. Most of my clients have been best-selling. The majority of them are women, although the season I'm in right now, I'm getting black male pastors, and that's okay. I've published one. I'm working on two more now. And so I don't really have – I can't really say that I only do this specific genre, this specific, but when I look at the totality of the books that I've published, all of them have been inspirational. Most of them have been nonfiction. All but one have been nonfiction. And then most of my clients have been women.
1: So you helped – you go as far as, so you publish the book, you help them pick with their cover, do you help with editing, uh, to, just to make sure the story is flowing mm-hmm. correctly and the grammar, the editing uh, for them, and, and and as far as the book publishing. Well, let me just stop with that first. So you help them with mm-hmm. the editing, the cover, making sure the story is is written to a, a point that it could attract and hold a reader's attention.
0: hmm so through Queen V as in Valerie Publishing, queenvpublishing.com, dot com. That's where I publish books for my clients. And through that, depending upon the package that they choose, because I have three books for three packages for physical books, and then two if they just want eBooks. So typically they want the physical book, of course. And I have three packages for that. Two of the packages include editing. They include marketing. They include eBook. They include bookmarks. They include positioning through. Queen v. Publishing. All my plans include a custom cover. I do not do covers. I've worked with people who came to me with covers that they did and made. Some of them were absolutely horrible. I have a professional cover designer who has designed thousands of covers. So what I do with an author is we discuss in full detail what your goals, your mission, your objective is for the book. I send a questionnaire, maybe about a 20 or 30 um, questions for them to help me better understand what is what is it that you want to do? What is your next? Because the book, for most authors, although it may be their first book, it becomes a launching pad for something else in their career, speaking engagements, conferences, you know, hosting their own live events, coaching, mentoring, you know, it launched them to something else. So I'm always asking them, what's your next? What's your overall objective? So as I'm publishing the book, I'm incorporating that into the book process. What I mean by that is if their goal is to be a mentor or a coach when they're when I'm editing their book and going through their process, I incorporate them things that see them as experts throughout the book. It's like dropping little breadcrumbs to take to the to the hut in the in the forest. So the intent is that they are seated with expertise throughout the book, subtle, subliminal almost messages. So by the time the reader gets to the end of the book, and the call to action, if you will, or the ask or the next is postured in the book, people aren't surprised that you say, okay, well, you can hire me to do this or I'll come and speak or join my online course because now they already see you as an expert. And so that's the type of stuff I do for my clients so that when their books are done, they are able to sell their books. But the packages include editing. Mm -hmm.
1: So. Uh, it, we're coming down to less than 10 minutes. I wanted to also ask you, it, I've heard this uh, when you speak of nonfiction. Have you found that mm-hmm. nonfiction is easier to sell than fiction?
0: Well, I wouldn't necessarily say easier. I would say it's a different audience because, for me, the book before my children's book, the book that I sold most of was my novel, The Forbidden Secrets of the Goody Box, Relationship Advice That Your Father Didn't Tell You and Your Mother Didn't Know. And I think the reason was because it had so much real relevant relationship advice wrapped up into fictional characters that women were on this journey with these characters, but they were learning about life, learning about love, learning about themselves, and learning about men in the process. So it was my best-selling book up until my children's book came along. I think what it is, part of it is positioning. When you have a nonfiction book, typically you have to be very specific on who you're trying to reach. You know, so like for Dr. Townsend, she was focusing on women who were overcommitted, overwhelmed. You know, trying to do a whole bunch of things, satisfy everybody else, and not satisfy themselves. So she has a very specific audience. Um, mm-hmm. Tony Perry Gillespie, her book "I'm Here Now: What a Woman's Guide for Corporate America" was really dealing with women who had kind of hit the glass ceiling on the job and didn't know how to move forward. So you have a, she had a very specific audience. And I think with novels, if you write a novel, say you write a paranormal paranormal fiction, a paranormal fiction, paranormal, then people who like paranormal may gravitate to your book, but people who don't like paranormal may not. So you may have a little more segmented audience, but I think if, especially in the African-American community, we like to read in stories you know, before we, were learn, before we learned how to read, before we were allowed to read, we passed down history, we passed down information by telling stories. So we love storytelling. And I think if you tell your nonfiction in such a way that it feels like conversation as opposed to uh, instruction, do this, do that, do this, don't do this, don't do that, it will go a lot further. So I, I don't know that it's really nonfiction versus fiction as much as, as it is identifying your audience, honing in on your audience, connecting to your audience, and then reaching your audience.
1: Can you share some pros and cons if you have published through Kindle, uh, publishing through Kindle? So many authors Mm -hmm. are going
0: down that path. Now, when you say Kindle, are you talking about e-book or for the physical book? The e-book. Yeah, I do I use Kindle, kdp dot amazon dot com. I use that for my ebooks and I and I have a good experience with it. I haven't had really any problem with Kindle from the ebook perspective. The feedback I've gotten from a lot of authors who were with Create Space, which was Amazon's print on demand printer, when Create Space closed, they transitioned everybody to KDP Amazon for print books. I have had feedback from authors that the quality of the book is not as good, um, and there were some other issues. I've not used KDP for physical, so I can't speak to that from my perspective. I use a premium digi- digital printer who puts my book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Baker & Taylor. They, they take care of all of that for me. So I think Kindle is a great tool. You have to be on Kindle. You have to be on Amazon because that's uh, a lot of people's go-to place. It kind of gives you credibility if they can find you on Amazon. The downside of being on Amazon, depending upon how you're on there, is that they take a significant portion of your proceeds, a minimum of fifty percent and then the other thing is depending upon how you're on there, the printer will be compensated, so it can affect your profit margins. Now I tell all my clients if I'm publishing their books, I put them on Amazon, but I tell them, don't direct people to Amazon unless your intention is to boost your ratings, your ranking on Amazon to you know try to be a best seller or if you are trying to get more reviews, more verified reviews. Other than that, sell your books directly to people through your website at the live engages because now you're making all the money instead of having to split the proceeds. But you need to be there uh, for the credibility.
1: Okay, okay. Are you working on any new books? I know you said you have a, uh, you want to do a, a boy's children book. Are you working on mm-hmm. any other new books? you have your clients that you work with? Are there any other new books coming out under Valerie Coleman's name that you're working on? And so could you give a glimpse into, into the, that book?
0: Absolutely. Well, while I was in the process of marketing and positioning all the things I can be, the Lord dropped another book title in my spirit. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, can I please finish this one first? So I have, it's crazy, and I'm going to do it. I have a concept. Um, for a book that I'm going to do, which is about Christian men and their faith and their, their walk with Christ. And, but in this book, I want to interview these men, and then I'm going to transcribe the interviews and use that as the book. So, for example, in this book, I want to talk to Denzel Washington. So, yes, I'll be talking to Denzel this year, soon, and very soon. With everybody locked down right now, is a perfect time to be reaching out to them. So, next week is the plan to start reaching out to these people or through their agents. So, Denzel Washington, Steve Harvey, Tyler Perry, I want to reach out to those type of um, Doctor Bishop T D Jakes, you know, and different men who are very clear in in their their beliefs in God and their and their faith. And how they, how they, how their faith has helped them to become who they are. And I'm going to talk to these people, interview them, get their, you know, insight into. Cause I'm trying, look, I'm trying not to say the title because the title is fire and I can't get the title up until I start moving <laughs> forward. But to give insight into how they, how their faith has moved them from fear, you know, into whatever it is they're, they're going to do next. So that's the that'll. I plan on doing interviews hopefully, you know, over like two or three months and then the book may come out later this year or even next year. But yeah, that I think and I think that one. I've gotten feedback from several uh, pastors, local pastors and men already who are like, Yeah, I want to be a part of that. So yeah. my I can get the uh, yeah, the George Fraziers and and uh, Brother Bedford, you know, just other other men of standard, quality men who are gonna give talk about their Christian walk and how they how they've uh, navigated life and became the successors they are through, so, you know, prayer.
1: Definitely a definitely a good one. Oh, that's a bestseller in the making. Now, wrapping up mm-hmm. here, Valerie, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where they can get a copy of All the Things I Can Be When I See Me and your other books?
0: Absolutely. So All the Things I Can Be When I See Me, my children's book, is available at Things I Can Be dot com and you'll actually I'll actually interview the um, interview I'll actually autograph the book so people can have it autographed to their special little one and then for all of my other services or to contact me my website is thewriter that's P E N as an in ink pen pen of writer dot com and remember I said if they let me know that they heard me on your show Denise Off the Shelf and they're interested in writing a children's book I will send them the link to the LeapFrog Your Success webinar about how to publish a best-selling children's book.
1: Okay, and if you're on any social media networks, can you very quickly tell us where
0: mm-hmm. listeners
1: can find you on social media?
0: Yes, ma'am. Facebook.com, Pen of the Writer. Twitter.com, Pen of the Writer. LinkedIn.com, Pen of the Writer. YouTube, Pen of the Writer. Instagram, Pen of the Writer. I don't plan on getting any more Anytime soon, it's just too many. Blog Talk, Pen of the Writer. I was on Blog Talk years ago. So, yeah, everything, if they search Pen of the Writer, um, typically I'll pop up, and those are on my social media handles as well. Okay, we have
1: had the absolute pleasure of listening to, I just call her like a book guru, Valerie Coleman, and <laughs> the book she's working on now sounds so exciting. Be really, 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 really excited and looking forward to that book. But Valerie is the founder of the Dayton Book Expo, And that that expo hosted over 700 authors. She's working with someone else now in partnership to put on Pen of the Writer Book Fest, which is going to be in place of the Dayton Book Expo. But she's also the author of Blended Family, The Forbidden Secrets of the Giddy Box, The Way to Success, How to Become an Overnight Success, Self-Publishing Made Easy, and All the Things I Can Be When I See Me. Pen of the Writer, Pen of the Writer. Social media and our website is also writer dot com. We want to thank Valerie for being here with us. If you came in in midstream, no worries. When the show finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to it entirety and share it with anybody who loves books looking to work on a children's book, looking for an illustrator. I'm trying to think of all the tips she shared. Might be interested in putting on a, a book expo. Might be going through a transition, maybe from the quarantine. She started out in industrial engineering and came into the book industry. Somebody might be transitioning and might benefit from what she shared here today and and and, and had a confidence to know they can do it. Because Valley was laid off during the Great Recession, which we know now is a, a, a tricky time as well, but she did it. So that's a success story that might encourage somebody. So you can share it with other people you think might benefit and listen to the, today's interview as often as you would like. As I always tell you, listeners, first of all, thank you. And you are awesome. You are amazing. You are incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Valerie, I'll shoot you an email. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye for now.